Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a kid from Philadelphia who was raised in a baseball-loving family. Dad's side were Philly fans. Mom's side loved the Yankees. My grandparents, when I was seven, six maybe, and they went, were going on a cruise. And I didn't understand what a cruise was. So my grandfather sat me down and he explained to me what a cruise was, going on a cruise ship vacation. And when it was done, I looked at him and I asked one question. Well, how do you get the box scores? <laughs> and my grandfather said, you don't. And I said, well, I'm never going on a cruise now. <laughs> Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball. From the sand lots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is John Bukshambi, who is the host of ESPN's Wednesday Night Baseball and also Sunday Night Baseball for ESPN Radio. And shortly after we recorded our conversation, it was announced that he had just been hired as the lead TV play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Cubs on the new Marquee Sports Network. Boog, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. My pleasure. Good to be here. And you're my first podcast of the new year. Wow. Yeah. A lot of pressure. It is the way lot. 2020 went. There's a lot of pressure there. Right? Well, and I was just going to say, with uh, you know, 2021 is here. Hopefully, things are going to be better. And that was the first thing I was going to ask you. What was 2020 like for you in calling Major League Baseball games? And you weren't even at the ballpark. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I called baseball games from my apartment, and between wow. going to Bristol, Connecticut, and doing games from my apartment, I did. You know, another 20, 25 TV games from Bristol for television. And then between New York and Bristol, another 20 or so on the radio. So I was locked in. It was quite interesting. Was it, would it kind of remind you of playing Stratomatic in your basement when you were a kid? No, not at all. <laughs> it was hard to see. It was just challenging, you yeah. know, because the other thing, too, is, you know, you're so used to the connection you get from seeing other humans mm-hmm. and, you know, to being isolated. I, you know, w- when we got to do the playoffs on the radio, we went up to Bristol and I had my partners, whether it was Kyle Peterson or Jessica Mendoza or Chris Single to me, but that was the first time I had a human next to me the entire season. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was just weird. I heard an interview with an umpire and they asked him what did he miss most about the fact that they were doing the games that they were and interestingly the umpires said i missed the crowds yeah i mean i think everybody the players missed it the broadcasters missed it i it's just it's not quite the same i mean you pump in the crowd and there are moments where you're not really noticing it but you know there's just the natural ebb and flow of momentum in a game and then with that the crowd reflects what's taking place on the field and that was um, eliminated. So that, yeah, that part was just challenging for sure. I saw a tweet that Michael Kay had posted, Michael Kay, the broadcaster for the Yankees. And it was a, it was a picture that he took from the press box at Yankee stadium where he was doing the game of the game. He was broadcasting 16 miles away in city field. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, there was a bunch of that. I mean, Susan Waldman had an even better one where she was broadcasting a game uh, at Yankee Stadium, and the Yankees are on the road, and there was a soccer game going on. Oh. NYCFC's playing at Yankee Stadium. And then even better was, you know, they were playing the American League playoffs 
in San Diego, Jesse Agler and Ted Leitner are doing a different game from the press box in San Diego. You know, you got the Astros and the Rays playing and the Padres and the Dodgers are, are playing in the, in the division series. So yeah, it was just, it was weird. It was definitely weird. Take me back to the early days. How did you fall in love with baseball? You know, my dad's side of the family, they're all from Philadelphia. You know, you know, my uncle John Mm -hmm. and I was born in Philadelphia. My parents met at Drexel. My dad's side of the family is all Phillies fans. My mom's side is all Yankees fans. But both families really love baseball. They just loved it. And so in my backyard, I just, you know, wiffle ball and a bat and just pitch to me from a young age. I liked hitting. I picked the bat up left-handed and would swing it and then watching it. And I just was one of those kids for whatever reason. It just spoke to me. And, and you know, the story I've told before is my grandparents when I was, I think I was seven, six maybe, and they went, were going on a cruise. So we were over their house and I didn't understand what a cruise was. So my grandfather sat me down and he explained to me what a cruise was going on a cruise ship vacation. And I sat there and and I didn't say anything. And he explained all the different parts of the ship and, you know, food and, you know, the different there's gambling and, you know, everything you could want is on the ship and blah, blah, blah. When it was done, I looked at him and I asked one question. Well, how do you get the boxes? (laughs) And my grandfather said, you don't. And I said, well, I'm never going on a cruise. Then. <laughs> and coincidentally, I've never been on a cruise, by the way. It, it is not because of lack of access to box scores, but I have actually never been on a cruise. But that, that is true. I just, I just always loved it. And it just spoke to me. And, and, you know, even my mom got it. Even my mom was someone that would get emotionally invested in baseball and the drama of baseball. Do you remember your very first Major League Baseball game? I don't. I have a vague recollection of being at the vet for like a Pirates Phillies doubleheader, you know, in the mid seventies. My grandfather, by the way, was the head of construction for the vet. Oh, well. so not head of ar- not head of architecture, but head of construction. Mm-hmm. Isn't there also an incident that you had? This was not during the World Series, but another incident that you have when the Philly fanatic showed up in the press box. Well, the yes, I mean, I think incident is not describing it correctly. It was just, it was an encounter, but it was really funny. I, I've always, I mean, I think the Philly fanatic is as funny as it oh, gets, and exactly. I've always loved him. And so it, it's happened multiple times where if you do a Phillies game on national TV, our producer will set it up to have the fanatic come into the booth. But it's basically, hey, we're going to have the fanatic come into the booth. Sometimes they'll tell you, sometimes they won't. And the plan is the fanatic comes into the booth and then there is no script. So he comes in and I'm not a small guy, but I would say I'm smaller now than I was then. (laughs) And he comes in with a basket filled with cheesesteak. And, you know, we put the, the booth camera on and he's funny and giving us a hard time. It was myself and Rick Stuckcliffe. And he's got, you know, like, it's like he's Red Riding Hood. He's got that basket and he's only, he's got just a whole bunch of cheesesteaks and he gives, takes one out and puts it in front of me. And I was like, Hey, 
then he puts one in front of Sut, and then he puts another in front of me, and then another in front of me, and I just look at him, and I say, you know I'm not happy with you right now, right? <laughs> and it was real. I mean, it was super funny. And eventually he kissed me, and everything was fine. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, a couple of people I want to ask you about that you've worked with over the years. Uh, obviously, you were with the Braves for many years. Do you, do you have a story about Phil Necro, who just passed away? My real memories are, you know, of the late 70s, early 80s baseball. And he was, you know, right in his prime and one of the, the better pitchers. And his brother was really mm-hmm. good as well. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what, what comes to mind when I think of him. And also, I will say this. Though I did not have encounters with him, the reputation that he carried in Atlanta from the people that did encounter him was that he was just an absolute prince. One of the things I read in in his passing, uh, somebody wrote an article about the fact that in his 300th win, he didn't throw one knuckleball because he wanted to prove to people that he could. Wow, I don't know if I knew that. (laughs) I didn't know it either. Here's what we're doing, because this is how I roll. I don't know whether you know this about me. I'm Uh fact-checking that. I will come (laughs) back. I am going to call you. I'm fact-checking that, and I'm going to call you back. And then if that is incorrect, we're going to tape. Otherwise, you're in the clear. We'll do a do-over. That's good. I like that. Sounds good. Uh, Let me ask you about (laughs) another couple of people that I think you have stories on. One is Chipper Jones. Tell me about Chipper. I met Chipper in 1997. That was my with the the then Florida Marlins, and it was right in the heyday of the Braves. And one of the things my job was to do the pregame interview, and I did all 162 games. So it really was this amazing opportunity because you you know you didn't want to do the Jeff Conine 87 times, so you're you're trying to find new and different people to talk to. So it was a way to get connected and introduced to guys on other teams. And the one thing with the Braves was that they were always really professional and just so Maddox, Lavin, Smoltz, Chipper. Hey, would you do the pregame show? Sure. Meet me in the dugout at 440. And you go to the dugout at 440 and they meet you there and they give you a great interview. And so I met Chipper so it was more just the familiarity of, oh, you're the guy with the Marlins over the years. And then eventually I came to the Braves. At that point, we knew each other a good bit. And during the three years with the Braves, somebody that likes the analytics but also wants to get the stories to humanize players, I just I would talk hitting with him. And I just discovered what a savant he was. You know, you realize how many guys will tell stories and remember things. And during that period of time, 07, 08, 09, sites like Fangrass were blowing up and more and baseball reference was expanding. And so more verification was available for things. And you just come to realize that guys would say, you know, back Four years ago, I was facing this guy, and this, this, and this happened. And then you go and look, and it would be, yeah, that's not what happened. But with Chipper Jones, always what he said happened, happened. Mm-hmm. And he just had this gift of recall. And it, the whole thing kind of culminates in a story where he was in a stretch. I can't remember whether it was 08 or 09, but he wasn't swinging the bat all that well. And I asked him one day why he was swinging at the first pitch so much. 
because it seemed like he was rolling over to second base a ton. And I and he explained to me because it's it's usually the only time I'm going to get a fastball in the at bat, and that's it. And I said, well, would it surprise you to know that you see the second lowest percentage of first pitch strikes in the majors? Mm. So you know, so is that a good idea? And we just discussed it, but he was adamant, like, look, this is the approach, and here's why. And the conversation was cut short because he had to go out and take batting practice. So that night I had the Padres and the Braves from Petco Park. Tim Stauffer is on the mound. The former first-round pick had some arm injuries, was not overpowering. And with two outs and nobody on, Chipper comes up and – he takes a 91-mile-an-hour fastball right down the middle for strike one. And he steps out of the booth and just stares a hole through me. <laughs> he steps out of the, bo- the batter's box, I should say, and just stares a hole through me in the booth like, you jackass. <laughs> and he eventually worked a walk, and then when he comes off the field, he's waving at me like, don't talk to me ever again. <laughs> and then last year, he came, not 2020 last year, 2019, twice he came on our broadcast, once for a full game, but another for three innings. And we did the story again, and he expanded on it to say, I'm walking to the plate thinking about you. He's like, you were in my head. You dictated that at bat. And when that pitch came and went right down the middle, he's like, I, I can't even tell you the curse words that were going through my head because it was such a good pitch to swing at. And just, there was another great one that he told that I thought was awesome this year was, gosh, I don't know what it was off of, but he, he revealed that every baseball card has always listed him at 6'4", 210, and he's actually 6'3", 225. And I said, so you're shorter and fatter. <laughs> and, he, and he burst out laughing. And I said, that's all my baseball card would say. But he, I, I so enjoy working with him, talking to him. I just enjoy being around him. And that story was pretty darn funny. And, and the only reason that story happened is because Chipper was fun about, was willing to give me the time to interact. And yeah, it was just great. Those great stories. It, I mean, I, I, I've gotten to tell the story so many, it feels almost tired, but it's really a great baseball story. story. I mean, when when a player steps out of the, the batter's box and looks up at the, you know, like we're, we were in the middle of the game and he's basically stopping the game and having a conversation with me <laughs> without really having a conversation with me. I mean, to the point where when we retold the story last or in 2019 with video, I live in New York City. Within a, a week, either in the airport or on the street, I got stopped a half dozen times by just random people. I'm in the Oakland airport. I'm on Third Avenue. Hey, the Chipper Jones story was amazing. Mm. So, file, you know, like it's another one of these things. Like, there's video of it. You know, you can Google it, but it, he's laughing so hard when he tells the story. It's just, it's wonderful. That's classic. That is so classic. Tell me about working with Rick Sutcliffe. Tell me about all you've learned, particularly about pitching, while working alongside that guy. I'll tell you something. I think I've learned as much about broadcasting working with Rick Sutcliffe as I have about pitching. That's Not that he doesn't know about pitching, but 
Man, Rick Sutcliffe prepares his butt off. Rick Sutcliffe has a pro. It, I, I would say, look, if you want to do it right and you want to know, if you if I said to you as ex player, you want to learn how to do this right, go follow Rick Sutcliffe around mm. for a season. Is the thing that I would mm. say. And that's I'm I'm not not answering your question on purpose, but I'm just telling you the thing with Sut is that if we would do every every Wednesday game, Rick Sutcliffe is landing at. 10 in the morning on Tuesday and going to the ballpark at three on Tuesday and going in each clubhouse and leaning on the cage and talking to both guys and then doing some of that again on Wednesday and then has basically paragraphs of notes on every player interacts with guys, calls the GMs, the managers. And the other thing I'll tell you about Rick Sutcliffe is, He's as good a partner as I've ever had, and and no one will ever be better. Specific, I mean, he's great, but specific to this, he never bails on you. It's nineteen four, and we're in the seventh inning, and we're out of material. He is grinding. It's, he, we're we're in the seventh inning, and we're going to commercial break. Hey, when we come out, let's try and talk about this. As he just doesn't stop, and I know it's a look. Our job is we work in the toy department, <laughs> but you work a lot of games and like there's times when a game stinks and we don't get to stop. You know, we still have to keep talking. There's nothing competitive happening on the field and Sut never stops working. He's always grinding. He never bails on you as a partner. And yeah, he's just, he's super prepared. And then the other part is he's always having a good day. And then I think as it went on, we just we developed this friendship where we would have so much fun with each other. You know, we had a great, there was a great one where I had done a walk and talk interview with Chris Davis, the first baseman, and, you know, who's a big guy. And I said, it's basically like a minute 20 and it's supposed to move fast. And so it's a, it's a little off the cuff, but it's also a little bit rehearsed because it's got to move and be tight. So I tell them, you know, that you need to be short answers. And then I say, and by the way, my final question is going to be, could I take Rick Sutcliffe in a fight? And would you just answer not without my help? So Chris Davis does it wonderfully. Chris, last thing, could I take Rick Sutcliffe in a fight? And he just looks in the camera and says, not without my help. And he does it perfectly. And it's funny. So Sut, who's sometimes funny, sometimes mean, you know, he's got the classic athlete kind of bully thing to him. And we're always, you know, he'll make a joke and then he'll, because I've said it to him, he'll be like, funny? And I'll be like, mean. Or funny. So he did a thing with Wade Davis where he he tried to do the same thing, but it led to something even funnier because in the rehearsal, Wade Davis said, he said, who would win in a fight near John Shambi? And Wade Davis said, who's John Shambi? And he made him do that on the air. And it led to this thing, I mean, where... Eduardo Perez was working with us and I didn't know that it was coming and it was so funny and they lost their minds. They laughed so hard. And in, in that spot, I feel like that's funny as hell. So my job is to make it as funny as possible. So I channel as much David Letterman as I can and just stone face the camera. Like really, really <laughs> who's John Chambi, you know, and they're falling all over themselves. I just love working with the guy. So I adore him. He's a great friend. And yeah, he taught me a ton about pitching, but 
had a huge influence on my life. One more question and I'll let you go. I know you're very passionate about raising awareness for ALS. Tell me that story and your involvement in the Project Main Street. I appreciate you asking that. I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in New York City, this little area that was created and opened in 1976. It's a small island between Manhattan and Queens called Roosevelt Island. And I moved there in 1977. It's like this island of misfit toys, kind of. All these kids, for whatever reason, it seemed as though, you know, we all loved sports. We all played tons of sports. So a whole group of us moved there in 1977 and became friends. And one of the guys I met there, his name is Tim Sheehy. And he was, you know, just, we were all part of the same group. Anyway, so I stayed connected with Tim and other guys throughout my life. Tim went on to the University of South Carolina. He played soccer goalie for them for a couple of years. And he got diagnosed with ALS in 2005. And it started where he was just walking on a public golf course in Brooklyn and would trip and fall. And he and my buddies would laugh about it. And then it just got worse and worse. And eventually he was diagnosed and he passed in 2007. But in 2006, we decided we would form a charity. And, you know, when he was still alive. So in 2006, we decided we were going to have a fundraiser and we would take half the money because Tim was, Tim and Katie, his wife, they were just, overwhelmed by the cost with his condition declining. There's so many things that are not covered. So my advocacy and Project Main Street raised people living with the disease. Now, keep in mind, the cost is crushing. Healthcare doesn't cover so many things that should be covered. I advocate as well for anything as it relates to raising money for research, too. But I think the thing is, you got to remember, this disease is 100% fatal, and people that are alive and living with it need help. And so that's how we started Project Main Street. We call Project Main Street. It was Tim's idea. Roosevelt Island has one street. It's called Main Street. Mm. So, you know, our slogan is, until there's a cure, there's care. And uh, that's what we do. So projectmainstreet.org is our website and and you know we've been doing it since 2006 our first event was a concert that played for free by Hootie and the Blowfish and you know we do auctions and and that type of thing and you know my hope is that major league baseball will have a Lou Gehrig day you know dedicated awareness sometime mm-hmm. soon so but that's the story it's Don or Tim and you know when we do it I get to think about Tim and smile and and just look you're trying to help people, you know. We're all in it together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Boog Shami, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for sharing about your life at the ballpark. My pleasure. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project Manager is Andrew Miller. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark. <laughs>